Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast, where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income, and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach, and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, Pete Wadgen here. So this is probably our most ambitious podcast series yet. Why? Because everyone in investing has an opinion and an interpretation of Warren Buffett and his investment style. If you Google Uncle Warren, you'll get 72 million results and there's no doubt that he's the king of investing. What we want to do is determine if we can distill Buffett's 80-odd years of investing into a podcast mini-series that can help you as an investor. So we'll list a few Buffettisms and we'll dissect each one in a little detail to try and extract the wisdom, what lessons can we learn, which are the important lessons. And what we can see is that many of them are on the same topics and expresses the same point in different ways. And we'll finish this series with the ultimate question, is Warren Buffett unique and can we all be a little bit more like Buffett? So join us as we discuss the Buffett philosophy, his principles of investing and what we can learn and whether we can replicate his style to build your wealth. And after all, As Buffett himself said, your best investment is in yourself and there's nothing that compares to it. So join Steve Moriarty and myself as we dissect a few Buffettisms and see what we can glean from the master. Cheers. G'day, welcome to the Derek and Clive podcast uh, (laughs) with me. (laughs) Family version. (laughs) And uh, Stephen Moriarty. So... uh, Today we're going to talk about price is what you pay and value is what you get. So the second part of our Buffett mini-series, looking forward to it. Right Okay, we're ready to rock and roll. Clearly I've had way too much uh, time on my hands over the last couple of months and I'm catching up with some of the old uh, British comedy. On that point, I was um, watching uh, one of the reruns of Only Fools and Horses this week and there's a bit where the dumb guy Trigger says, uh, you've always got to look after your broom. And uh, this broom's had 17 new heads and 14 new handles. And then Sid goes back to him, well, how, how the hell is it the same bloody broom then? Uh, so I think uh, yeah, this is a philosophical question for you then. So I think uh, what the writers were referencing there is um, what Plutarch uh, once posed as a question. The, the Athenians maintained Theseus's ship by maintaining all of the rotten planks. Yep. And a bit the same actually in London, 2007, the Cutty Sark got destroyed by fire then it's like well is it actually the same ship now it's all been replaced or is it something completely new so uh the the link through to today's question this is one for you to ponder as we go through so we talk a lot about sort of long-term investments and and warren buffett so he took his billion dollar position in coca-cola in 1988 um and i suppose in the one sense it is kind of the same company uh, still selling sugar water but these days they're selling uh, across 200 countries, 200 brands. So if I take the kids today to, I don't know, Costa Coffee, that would be a Coca-Cola brand or, you know, they buy Sprite or Fanta or 
you know, if a mum pours a G&T, that'd be Coca-Cola, or if you have a Powerade after yep. the gym. And actually, even if I take the kids to the zoo, you, you, they, do, they do this thing on the big screen, sort of save the environment, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sponsored by Mount Franklin, one of the great uh, producers of plastics, <laughs> another Coca-Cola company. So that is, um, a, it's not a yes-no question. I guess this is something for us to ponder as we go through. Coca-Cola, it clearly has changed a lot over the years. It's the same company, but is it the same business? And I suppose if you look uh, in a broader sense, uh, the diversified conglomerate or even somebody like Berkshire Hathaway, uh, obviously the component parts have changed so much. Is it even the same business today? Well, interesting question. Actually, probably not in the set. Well, my argument would be it's not. Um, reason why, okay, well, at the start, Buffett was a, a cigar butt investor, as he said, you'd pick it up and, you know, there'd be one puff left, i.e. meaning that you'd buy basically companies that were near bankruptcy and flog off the assets. And that was the way Ben Graham did it because Graham was sort of born out of the Depression or was actually really affected by the Depression. Um, and after that, he saw all these companies laying around where he was basically saying you could buy them for less than the cash they had on the balance sheet. And so that that became the idea in a sense of undervalued companies. And it sort of faded away over the years. But Buffett, when he got, once he sort of ran into Charlie Munger and also with uh, Philip Fisher, reading Philip Fisher, they he sort of moved from a, a garbage company at a wonderful price or something, a fair company at a wonderful price, and then it was getting a, a great company for a fair price. But basically, what uh, Buffett really learned from Graham was that old one where he said, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And it sort of changed over the years. Like you say, you sort of look at it and say, well, Berkshire's not, I mean, you know, Berkshire's not still knocking out textiles like it was originally bought by Buffett for. And even Buffett's has, um, style has changed over the years because, uh, you know, like you and I talk a lot about the Kelly criterion and stuff. And Buffett is now a real Kelly investor, whereas before, when he was doing the cigar butt, uh, the cigar butt stuff, he wasn't really a, a that type of investor. And so he came more to understand value as more than just what the, the assets were worth. You know, there was the earnings power value and that sort of thing. Yeah, so we're all, I guess we're all the product of our own environment. And if Ben Graham lived through um, the Wall Street crash and, you know, that would change your view of investing and presumably to a more defensive approach and, and also stuff was cheap. So I guess he was looking for investments where, as you said, if they were fully cash backed or if the assets on the balance sheet were worth more than you were paying for the company, that would greatly de-risk the investment. I guess over time, the way Buffett fine-tuned that approach is trying to find, yes, looking for value, but also looking for wonderful companies, as you, as you say. So I guess that, that leads on to the uh, fundamental question then, that, you know, what is the difference between price and value? And as Buffett said, they kind of joined at the hip. So I wake up this morning and the uh, headline says that Bitcoin is uh, 61,000 US dollars, which is, <laughs> so, I, so I can see the price, but how do you work out the value? So obviously, you know, value is a very slippery concept at the best of times to some degree because you've got to make a view of the future. So 
I guess if you're trying to sum up the difference between price and value, that that is based on, well, it must be based to some degree on predictions and your opinions and beliefs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows the price of something because that's, you know, right in front of you. There's never any argument over what the price is. The argument is always about what what is the value, whether it's a current value of, you know, a motor vehicle or a painting or something like that, or future value. Uh, Ben Graham talked about investing in the sense of saying, well, you know the price of it, the value is sort of subjective. And if you think about it, like you mentioned about Bitcoin, I was having a chat with a, a couple of people on Twitter who were saying, you know, Bitcoin this and Bitcoin that. And I said, well, you know, I know the price of Bitcoin, but I don't know what the value is. You know, a US dollar's worth a dollar in the US, you know, an Aussie dollar's worth a dollar in Australia, and that's an agreed value. Whereas with investing, nobody really knows what the true value is, but, and, and meaning it's a subjective sort of thing. But it just seems like Buffett has an unbelievable knack of finding companies and really knowing what the value part is, you know, or what the valuable part of that company is, you know, like it's not like saying, you know, it's got to, got lots of plant property and equipment. Buffett is that kind of guy that you just sort of look at it. I mean, everyone bagged him about buying Burlington North Railway, you know, and it's turned out to be an absolute killer of an investment. And you sort of think, well, what did he see that nobody else could really see? But when he does talk about value, he talks about the intrinsic value. And that's what he he really sort of focuses on. And if you listen to him, he seldom talks about price. He always just talks about value. And, you know, like when he talks about Berkshire, he talks about increasing the intrinsic value of it. He never talks about the stock price at all. It's sort of the rest of us mere mortals who talk about stock prices. He was always talking about value. And because he's got that underlying belief, which is, you know, the market will eventually realise the value of something. There's a few things there, a couple of things that spring to mind. So one is that if industries change, then the value can disappear pretty quickly. Yeah, so if you, yeah. if you made an investment in uh, Blockbuster or uh, Kodak or yep. one of those companies, which didn't change with the times, then the value may appear to be good at one point in time, but that can change. So I suppose that, that also leads you on to looking uh, the, the Buffett-style investor at the larger companies or the bigger end of town because of the survivorship. And also uh, because discounted cash flow valuations can be so sensitive to the inputs that you put in there. I suppose the other point of defending your capital is is to look for a massive margin of safety so that even if you flex those assumptions to the downside, you're still buying uh, something that isn't going to lose money. So I think we've, we've covered in the previous episode, Buffett's keen to look for a strong earnings yield, but also he'd look for a big margin of safety on what he believes the intrinsic value to be versus the price. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not, um, I shouldn't say he's not a fan of discounted cash flow. I know Charlie Munger isn't. Um, he thinks all that stuff's pretty well garbage. But Buffett really looks at those, you know, if you talk in a, in a sort of micro sense about companies, Buffett has the four filters, which is, you know, a business we understand, um, got long-term favourable economics, good management, and a reasonable price. Um, But a lot of that really, when you look at it, is sort of like, okay, well, every one of those points is subjective. Whereas 
people tend to sort of focus on the discounted cash flow because it's actually easy to do. The other part is too that the really big issue, I think, for Buffett is the durable competitive advantage. I think that's a, you know, he always talks about a moat and the the number one jot of, of the management is to widen the moat. That's the idea. Professor Bruce Greenwell talks about durable competitive advantages and sort of says, look, you want to have wide or good operating margins, a good return on equity and a stable market share between the companies in the industry. I would add survival, which you just mentioned before, you know, because I think when you look at Buffett, I mean, fair enough, he's got lots of money. Um, and he really, he, he could buy basically most of the Russell 2000. So he tends to stick to the bigger end of town. I think that's a good strategy, but I think he also sees, you know, he talks about his circle of competence and that sort of stuff. But that's where the real long-term value is. If you do small caps, which, you know, lots of people do and they're very good at it, but the problem is that, it's, I think it's riskier with a small cap in terms of determining what the value is, whereas Buffett, I think, likes to grab, you know, as he said, he reads, you know, 50 years of the value line or the, the IBM annual report. He gets a, a historical understanding for the company, and I think he then realises that if he puts a lot of money in, he can't move quickly. So he's got to really look at what is the long-term or, you know, as I said before, the intrinsic value of the of the companies? Yeah, so as I said, we're the product of the environment uh, that we grew up in or we've been exposed to. And I, obviously in a 12-year bull market now, people are definitely looking to the smaller end of town because they're very interested in picking fast growth. Uh, yeah. Different for somebody who's managing billions of dollars of capital, of course. As you said, Buffett, um, you can't move... Uh, in a nimble fashion with such large balances. So therefore, he's, he's almost duty-bound to look at the either buying whole companies or the larger end of town and looking for something that's, that's definitely going to be around in 10 or 20 years so yep. that if you're going to invest in a, a company, you want to see a strong return over a long period of time, which is something, uh, it's probably a bit of a, a dead weight on his returns to a certain degree because he's, he's a bit restricted in what he can invest in. Yeah, I just you're just making me think about value in, in sort of Buffett terms. And it's one thing I'm always a bit wary of in the sense of saying, you see a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, I'm a Buffett type investor and I want to invest like Warren Buffett. And I, for me, the problem has always been, okay, well, you know, if you've got a couple of hundred thousand or even if you've got a million, if you wanted to be sort of like Warren Buffett, then... Really, you've got to compound at a really enormous rate, at a at a decent at a decent amount of time to really get seriously, you know, wealthy enough. It depends on what you start with, of course. But what I'm trying to say is, Buffett's value is different to value that, say, a first time investor might buy, because the first time investor starts out with fifty thousand, and Buffett starts out with you know fifty billion. And so the idea of, you know, you compound 50 billion at 10%, well, you know, you're going to still be fairly rich in the, after 10 years. Whereas if you compound 50,000, it, it sort of, you know, you'll make more money, but it's not as if you'd actually say to yourself, oh, well, you know, happy days, I'm 
you know, I'm going to pull up stumps after 10 years because the concept is really depending on how much money you've got in that sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, and uh, I think this is something that we've touched on before, you know, with the discounted cash flow calculations, you know, at the end of the day, you want something that's going to give you an approximately right answer, not something that's precisely wrong. But yeah. it, it becomes quite difficult for an individual investor, especially you know, busy people who are not doing this stuff full time, uh, to have the level of confidence to pull the trigger on an ind- individual company. And that's where sometimes these days you might look at an industry or sector ETF rather than trying to pick the winning company. So yeah. we'll come back to that in, in my next question for you, Steve. But what I wanted to touch on here, so this is this is probably a fundamental question. The Buffett indicator, so he, he's one of his preferred indicators of whether a market is cheap or expensive, is uh, the market cap to GDP. So yeah. looking back through history, I've got a few numbers for you here. 1972, it peaked at 0.75 times and then fell through to 1974. Uh, during the tech bubble, uh, market cap to GDP was 1.43 times in 99 before crashing all the way through to 2002. And then more recently, in the pre-GFC phase, market cap to GDP was over uh, over one time. So uh, And then we had a crash all the way through to March 2009. So as you've said previously, if you, if you can invest post-recession and uh, you have a big tailwind in your favour then over the coming decade. But it's interesting to me how at the end of 2020, we we're pretty much at two times GDP. And you would think looking at history, people would say, well, as Buffett himself has indicated, you're, you're really playing with fire mm. at that. But it's it's just, it's intriguing to me how people can just rationalise valuations away. And our oh, world, well, you know, it's a more global economy these days. Interest rates are low. And now, um, even into 2021, we've blown off to even higher higher levels. So so what are your thoughts on the Buffett indicator and what that tells us about risk? Yeah, I think it's a, well, I think it's a pretty good macro indicator. As you know, we always bang on about CAPE. That's our sort of preferred one. Um, market cap to GDP, what Buffett was sort of saying was, if you could pick up stocks for uh, when the indicator was at about 80 or 0.8, you would do all right. The other thing too is he's referring there to, you know, not every company's listed, so it can't be, the figure can't be one. In terms of the value stuff, I always sort of go back to Buffett's 99 speech at Sun Valley, you know, where he took on the tech titans, which, you know, at that, you sort of look back now and think, oh yeah, you know, that was pretty obvious. But uh, I mean, you know, you would have by CAPE standards because CAPE was at, at about 44. But Buffett was arguing basically about valuation and was saying, you know, all you guys are idiots because you, you don't understand what the value is. The parallels today are exactly the same. You know, like you, you talk to the fellas about Bitcoin or unicorn valuations and they're really, really aggressive. You know, they're they're aggressive defenders of the idea that, you know, Bitcoin's going to go to the moon and that sort of thing. And it's, you know, it just I just sort of look at it and go, uh-oh, geez, I think it's good. You know, we're back at 2000 again. Yeah, it's funny. Because he, was, he was practically uh, <clears throat> booed off the stage in that speech or 
uh, certainly maybe not literally but figuratively and um yeah. yeah but i think you know he probably said it in a in a nicer way that that eventually brought brought the audience around to what he was saying but i've seen the same thing at uh, you know seminars and stuff where if you've got a, a property seminar and uh, i've seen in fact friends of mine like uh, chris tate and david novak in 2017 saying well look if you've got a property market where prices are going up much quicker than incomes that's not going to carry on yeah, again, not maybe not literally booed off the stage, but you could sense the the discomfort in the audience. Um, <laughs> but it's it's exactly the same with the uh, uh, the more speculative stocks at the moment or uh, cryptocurrencies or whatever. There's no point in criticizing somebody's view because that you get a very aggressive response. You've just got to really focus on building your own position and not losing money. But it's funny, isn't it? Because as I said at the start, we all know the price, but the question is, or the argument is about the value. And I think that the, there's actually sort of, um, what do they say, talking at cross-purposes or something, because I think Bitcoiners, for example, are always talking about the price of Bitcoin, and that creates the narrative, whereas people like Buffett were saying to the tech guys, look, guys, I'm not arguing that, you know, you're, you're all a bunch of fraudsters. I'm just saying that when you look at the price, you can't relate it to value. And that's, again, his criticism of gold, where he says, well, you know, gold doesn't produce anything, so how can it have a value? You're not going to wake up tomorrow and gold will be 50 bucks. But his philosophical argument is correct by saying, all you're doing is buying a price. And if you can't value it, well, how do you know if the price is right over the long term? Um, and what a lot of people do, and this is what we talk about a lot by saying to people, oh, yeah, I've had a really great five years, but what about the five before? Oh, no, that was awful. And it's like, well, that's not a strategy. And it's the same for, for gold and Bitcoin to say, I've made lots of money out of gold and Bitcoin, so therefore it's actually, you know, it's valuable. And it's like, no, 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 you just got lucky in Bitcoin. Now, they will obviously see it differently. And that's that's fair enough. They could be right. But my argument is the same as Buffett's in saying, how do you measure the value? You know, it, it just seems to be one of those things where from a, a macro perspective, it just doesn't seem to work properly. Uh, yeah, you have a, a success in, in real estate and people have a tendency to think, well, that was an excellent decision and you, you, you can make a lot of um, adjustments to hindsight. Just same with Occidental, as I was saying last week. It's like, well, you know, if you'd have asked me a few months ago, I wish I'd never heard of the company. And yet here we are, uh, the, the price rebounds, and I'm now rationalizing in a way as one of the, the finest, the finest counter-cyclical plays. In my... <laughs> so, but I suppose that, that leads us on to um, the question of industry. So obviously Buffett is, is um, looking for low volatility sectors, yeah. companies with um, stable market share. So that might lead him towards things like telcos and... Well, you mentioned oil companies yeah. there uh, and and stuff that where there's going to be a durable competitive advantage. Interesting question, though, because Buffett is, although he's um, taken a huge position in Apple, he's, he's well known for not being uh, big on tech companies, often because the valuation is seen to be years into the future. But that does um, raise an interesting question. If he's looking for stocks with bond-like qualities, and therefore, looking over the long run, well, to some extent, he's got to factor in techni technological change because over the long run, that is going to happen. 
Yeah, yeah. He often, as you said, he wants stocks with a bond-like quality. And what he actually means is he wants low volatility because he knows mathematically that 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 sort of drags on his returns or volatility drag affects his returns. But, you know, because he's so large, he can't be a day trader, you know. So he and, and, you know, you think, Pete, he, he the only investments he really sells are the duds. He does rebalance the winners, but he sells the dud investments. Other than that, he doesn't really wish to sell, which, he, you know, and that's fair enough. He says he's hold, he's, you know, favourite holding periods forever, but he really hasn't got a choice either. But I think the thing with Apple is an interesting one. And I, we might have talked about this before, but I think Apple is now an infrastructure stock. It's not really a tech company. You know, it's it's a manufacturer of iPhones and products, but it's a really it's really now like a digital road in the sense of all of it leads through either Apple or Google or, you know, Samsung and those sorts of things. So I think the reason why I would argue Apple's not tech is because Buffett doesn't buy tech. And the reason why is because he can't discern the value out long enough. It's not it's not to say there's a tech company that is a really good value at the moment. But what Buffett says is, yeah, but where will it be in, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years time? Because, you know, that other Buffettism about, you know, if you don't want to hold it for 10 years, you don't want to hold it for two minutes or something like that. So what he's saying is, if I buy something, you know, the here we go, the 20 punch cards, mate, you know, that one, our favourite one. When you look at that, he says... Well, if I'm going to buy something, first of all, it's going to be huge. Secondly, it's going to be a big stake. And thirdly, you know, he's going to have to hold it for basically until he drops dead, which is, you know, not that far away these days. But um, he's always got that focus on the value, you know, not the price of the company. So I'm looking over to my uh, bookshelf to my right here, and I I can probably count without even uh, scanning through. There's probably about a dozen Buffett books there. There's uh, Buffettology, Mary Buffett. There's yep. Hagstrom, the Warren Buffett portfolio, and th- these things are. Uh, that's probably one of my favourites, by the way, if you're looking for books to read. But um, looking through those books, there's an awful lot of equations, uh, especially in Buffettology from memory. Yep. And I would say that the average investor is probably not going to spend all that much time looking at you know, things like the stability of. of market share over 10 years yeah. or whatever. So, it, so how does an, an individual um, get some benefit from from looking at this? So let, let's talk a bit about the equations themselves and Buffett looking yeah. for deep value. But also, how does growth factor into that? Because as Buffett himself has said, that you know growth and value are tied at the hip. So yep. let's try and make, bring this into a sort of a practical discussion. How should an individual, clearly never going to be as uh, good as Warren as analysing companies and looking for uh, for value, but um, how should an individual uh, try and learn from his skills in that area? Yeah, I think it basically says get the last 10 years of return on equity, uh, the last 10 years of operating earnings, uh, earnings per share, a whole series of stuff that you can get about the company. And what Buffett looks for, for example, in earnings per share, is he looks for continuous rising, you know, three cents a share, four cents, five, seven, 10, 22, that sort of stuff. Like from a personal perspective, I don't do that much anymore simply because I usually stick to ETFs. But when I do companies, 
you know, I buy companies I know and that I have sort of a high media, you know, BP or, you know, company Telstra, companies that have got a high visibility in local markets. And so, but the reason why I don't do what those equations are now is because you can look at a lot of the ratios and just get a brief idea very quickly about what whether the company will survive or not. You know, so you look at, um, for example, let's use BP or Shell or uh, Exxon and stuff. You know, they have debt, but generally you're not going to wake up and go, BP's going to, you know, BP's not going to be there in the morning. Or it might have, like oil companies, a rough two or three years, but it will come back. And so the equations, I mean, Buffett doesn't sit down and do the equations, I don't think, anymore. But apparently he's got, you know, he's just got figures at the drop of a hat that he rolls through in his head. Yeah, and I think um, one of the big challenges there too, especially, as you mentioned, looking at individual companies, I, I think um, often of the example in Australia of uh, David Jones versus Meyer, and at various points in times, you might have seen growing profits, uh, stable margins, decent market share, but if the whole industry is changing, yeah, um, then you can really get caught out there. Yeah. And, and that's why, as you mentioned, if you're going to do companies, you look for the big systemic end of town because the survivorship is is going to be greater over the, the very long run. So yeah. uh, I think, though, as you said, uh, if you're going to look at an industry that's um, that's become cheap or out of favour, using an ETF which might own you know the top few dozen companies in the sector is obviously less risky. Also, at the macro level, uh, things like the CAPE ratio can be pretty useful in terms of identifying uh, what is cheap against this long-term average and what is expensive? I think the price is easy. And as I said before, it's it's really the value that everybody argues about. I think Ben Graham's idea of value was a margin of safety. If you can get a dollar for 60 cents, okay, you know there's value. What's it going to be worth in five years? I don't have any idea because I'm going to flog it when it gets back to a dollar. Buffett did that successfully at the start. And I think a lot of people sort of forget that bit. You know, like they, they're always a bit like, oh, well, you've got to invest for 30 years and buy good companies and hold them. Whereas, as you sort of said before, and at the beginning, you know, the economy is, you know, is Coca-Cola still the same company? Well, kind of, you know, but it's got another 350 products. And if they're all duds, well, you know, Coca-Cola can sell a lot of Coke, but if the, the rest of them don't work very well, then it's not the same old Coca-Cola. So, you know, we know the price of things. I think the, the tricky bit is the value. But I just wanted to throw this in because I think, look, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a silly way of saying, thinking about it. But value is a little bit, in my mind, about how the judge described pornography. You know, and he said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That's the way I sort of look at value. You know, you it, and Buffett sort of says it should just, you know, Say 95%, no, you say no to 95% of things. And I think Buffett's idea of value is so deeply ingrained that he doesn't even realise, you know, it's actually just intuitive on his part now where he he knows so much about so many things that he doesn't bother with 95% of stuff because he knows there's not value there in a company, in reading a book, in reading an annual report, in reading a, an industry structure, you know, like he just, he's got it so well refined now that 
you know, he's got such an efficient system now. And as you know, when we talk about being systematic, the idea is basically saying, well, if you've got a really good process, just ignore everything else because, you know, you know your process works. So that's the sort of, you know, that's the way I look at it these days. Yeah, and it, as you said, it's, it's been doing it so long, it's, it's kind of intuitive. So um, so I think some, yeah, some key takeaways there. But let's, let's look at it in real time. Last year, the stuff that got cheap, telcos, resources and some commodities sectors and uh, also in some parts of the world, financials were pretty cheap for a while yep. there. So, uh, but um, as we always say, if you're not um, confident enough to analyze an individual company, then an ETF can really help to sort of smooth that process and give you the confidence to make a, a meaningful size investment. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so well, thanks to Only Fools and Horses and Derek and Clive for <laughs> the inspiration today and Triggers Broom. I'll have to go away and watch a few more, uh, maybe some Faulty Towers and see what we can come up with for episode three next week. So uh, thanks today, Steve, for the input on price is what you pay, value is what you get. And uh, look forward to catching you next week. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.